my name is Janice B. Gordon, and this is Scale Your Sales Podcast. Welcome to Scale Your Sales Podcast, listed number nine of 43 best podcasts for every sales professional. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert, recommended by LinkedIn Sales as one of 15 innovating sales influencers to follow. Today's episode of Scale Your Sales podcast, my guest talks about generational game, the generational game. He introduced this subject at the uh, talking at the Institute of Sales Professionals Future of Sales event. Really interesting conversation because in his workforce, a legacy organization, there are a literally four generations of salespeople and how he's having to navigate the differences and preferences within the organization, within the the sales team, and understand how he is future-proofing the sales team with apprenticeship schemes and uh, a recruitment strategy going forward. There are many other sales leaders that are not as far ahead in their thinking about the sales workforce. So you're going to love what my guest has to say. My next guest is the group sales director of Royal Mail and Parcel Force, which is the largest delivery company in the UK representing over 250,000 business customers and circa 4 billion in annual revenues. Welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, John Nicholson. Thanks, Janice. Good to be here. Uh, Well, it's wonderful having you here. We met at the Institute of Sales Professionals and you did this amazing presentation under the banner of the future of sales. And I was really intrigued and interested that I kind of uh, waited afterwards to grab your attention to have a chat about what you talked about, which is the generation game. Mm. So perhaps we'll use that as the starting off point to you know, just explain what your your um, uh, description or, you know, what's what's your view on the generation games and and how that impacts sales and sales leadership? Yeah, of course. Janice. So uh, what this is rooted in for me is um, so I'm kind of responsible for the sales teams across Royal Mail and Parcel Force, both legacy organisations with a, a long history of having uh, a sales team. And of course, the brilliance that comes with that is. Uh, people that have been in position for quite a long time and that's amazing but it also brings another challenge which is at some point we're going to have quite large groups of people come to the end of their career and in response to that part of my role as a sales leader is of course to make sure that we're we're future ready and match fit to continue the sales experience that we've been providing for, for years and years and years And what that really did for me in that context was shine a light on the differing needs of the different generations that we have. And as I started to look into this more and it it transpired or dawned on me, at least, that for the first time ever, we've got four generations, um, identified generations in the workplace from um, baby boomers and Generation X, Generation Y or millennials and, of course, Generation Z. Mm -hmm. And. The 
<clears throat> pace of change across those generations has, of course, increased you know, hugely, largely driven by technology. Um, and Generation Z, the, the latest generation, are what we could term digital natives. And you could say the same about uh, millennials as well, to be fair. But of course, the way in which they work because of that digital nativeness and the access, the easy access to the types of technology that we've all got access to today, fundamentally alters their approach to their day to day work. And where I think that's interesting in the context of sales, of course, it's not just about our sales teams. Our customer base is exactly the same. And uh, regardless of um the size of your customer base or the market you're in, what we're seeing is that age profile widens. So there is nothing to say you're not selling to a 19-year-old CEO. In the same way, there's nothing to say you could be a fresh-faced 19-year-old salesperson selling to a you know, 65 or 70-year-old CEO and everything in between. And really, the research and the work that I was doing was trying to understand how do we best set ourselves up to understand those generational differences, being very mindful that age discrimination is a crime, and equally, as we always should be with any of the protected characteristics, is be really aware of our own biases and what that means to the way we approach our customers, what that means to the way we approach our teams. But also, as a sales leader, what's the environment that we're building for people? Does it work for, for, for everybody? And maybe that's a utopia that we can't obtain. But is there things that we think are the right approach for younger generations or older generations, which, in fact, we might be getting wrong? So that was the context of, of the research and what we were talking about. And this is research that you you very much led on. Yes. Yeah, I did this research as, as my dissertation for my MBA. So um, but as ever, it was really relevant. And sometimes the topics are uh, blindingly obvious that you should spend some time looking at it. It's a live challenge for me to understand in in my context as um in the job that I do and I think it's really really interesting because you you know you're a legacy organization as you've talked about and your your sales team they have long tenure and many of them will be looking for retirement um and I thought it was quite interesting this research that I um found with uh A-M-A-N-Y, said that the demographics, because you mentioned that your customers haven't really changed. So I wondered, you know, if this was relevant. The demographics are changing in that women are making up 54% of B2B buyers under the age of 30, which I thought was quite interesting, and most under the age of 25, which means that while men are still handling 75% of business purchases over 100,000. The survey predicts that women will make up most of the B2B buyers in as little as 10 years. Mm -hmm. So the the customer base is changing quite dramatically. It absolutely is. And I think maybe um, in a relatively luxurious position in Royal Mail, because our customer base is so broad that actually we have been by default used to dealing with uh, men and women, everybody of different ages. And of course, we service the whole country and every community within it. So we have to be very mindful of that, almost to the point where 
we're probably quite blind to the differences in a way, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully in a positive way. But of course, that blindness, being aware of those blind spots is equally important as well. It's fascinating research, isn't it? We certainly see it, particularly in logistics, which is the industry that we're in. And if we were stereotyping or making an assumption, you'd assume it's quite male dominated. But we certainly see and we deal with the biggest retailers in the country and, and uh, you know, many, many uh, tens of thousands of business owners as well. Um, we're certainly seeing that that mix of senior decision makers change to, to, to that view, um, both in that male female mix and in terms of um, age demographics and so on. And I think I mentioned in the talk, you know, haven't we, uh, all of us have might have been who are getting to a certain age, might have been guilty of saying, oh, aren't the policemen getting young nowadays and things like that, you know, and it's this, it's this point that we, we sort of forget that we're getting a bit older and we still assume everyone operates the same way we do. I think we're all guilty. Each of the generations are guilty of doing that. Um, How dare you? Well, I'm still 25, John, in my mind. Well, exactly, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, and that makes you about six years more mature in your mind than I am in mine. And <laughs> yeah. different, isn't it? So. Exactly. So is your utopia to um, have a balance, you know, a balance in your sales workforce that reflects that balance in your customer base? So, yes, but that's part of it, Janice, because um, th- there's always this um, challenge, isn't there, between yeah. the best person for the job, uh, making sure we're representative of uh, society, making sure we're representative of the communities we serve. And, and you know, the, the, the ongoing debate, which is very challenging between positive discrimination and, and actual discrimination and, and so on and so forth. My utopia is to make sure that let's say regardless of characteristics for a moment that actually what we've got is real diversity of thought and an understanding and and, and a a group of different perspectives because of the differences in the people that we've got so whether that's across age whether that's across sex whether that's across race religion you know um, uh, birth origin whatever it might be because the other challenge you have with a legacy organization of course is um, on paper quite diverse i've got about a 50 50 split between men and women we've got quite a good age mix uh uh, now you know across from the people starting their careers to to people coming to the end of their careers still got a challenge in seniority and tenure across those but you'd expect that but many of those teams have worked together for a long time so even if you've got a an on paper mix of characteristics you know male female age religion um, um ethnic minority and so on and so forth they can conform to type as well so actually they still start to have the same way of thinking and the environment in which we operate in certainly post-covid of course but generally is moving very very quickly and so even if people started off with those different perspectives if they've been in the same team doing the same thing and using the same solutions for three or four years maybe then guess what? The benefit of those perspectives starts to wane anyway. Mm. So, so utopia for me is that how do we find a way to ensure that we're constantly bringing in those fresh ideas, those fresh perspectives, constantly positively challenging each other to come up with different looking solutions, to come up with different ideas to solve the problems that we now we now face. Um, 
And and I think that's the I, I think we spoke, didn't we, James? We spoke about the the work of Matthew Said and, and rebel ideas, and it, yeah. it, some of that is rooted rooted in that, which is. How do you take a group of intelligent people, and of course all of my team are incredibly intelligent, but make sure they're not an unintelligent team? Mm. That's uh, a, a, maybe a challenging um, label to give it, but I think that articulates the, the point really. Um, and in my world, I'm very fortunate, I've got a very large team, it's about 400 people. But the way that the new business team operates is quite different to the way the key account management team operates. But they're both trying to do the same thing in reality, which is help the customers spend some more money with us and get the best use of our services. But I go very different ways. Yeah. So uh, how are you leading the multi-generational workforce, you know, and adapting to the kind of buyer preferences and behaviours? I mean, are you throwing a grenading every now and then, you know, just to mix things up? (laughs) So, um, yes. Uh, and sometimes they're small grenades, just smoke grenades, maybe, <laughs> rather than uh, on explosions. There's a couple of things, Janice. So one of the things is trying to break, just break down some of the barriers, right? That constant challenge of thought, you know, is this really the right way of doing things? Let's, we've got quite a, a well-embedded coaching mentality across the leadership team, which is really, really helpful because it means that we can coach our, our way through some of those difficulties of thought. Uh, I'm currently running through a, uh, a, a change program with my team at the moment which is effectively doing that which it's effectively trying to create new villages of or new communities within the sales team of the same of the brilliant people but mixing them in a way to help them think differently um to break down some of those silos now that that level of change can be like any change could be quite uncomfortable for people mm-hmm. Um, because you know they love their teams and they love getting together and they're they're very comfortable in them uh but being able to do that and trying to explain that's the reason for the change you know this isn't a restructure for the sake of a restructure or a cost-cutting exercise this is an ideas generation exercise because our world has changed our Mm. context has changed uh both in the business point of view and the macro environment point of view um so that's helping continual training so we've uh, been quite definite to try and address some of the age balance, bringing younger apprentices in, launching the first business to business sales apprenticeship scheme with Middlesex University. Regardless of the fact that people coming in are really talented and brilliant, just that injection of youth, frankly, it brings a bit of uh, a, a bit of enlightenment and some new ideas and some positive challenge and a bit oh looking over your shoulder, and that encourages some change. So I think. It's all well and good just saying, right, we're going to do this. But I think what we've been doing steadily over the last probably five or six years is really um, incrementally introducing that change and being quite visible about it. So what's the motive behind all of this? Why bother doing this? There must be is there must be a personal driving force, because after all, you're doing research into this area. But yeah. also that I wonder what the kind of business um culture message is why why bother is it about social change is it about social justice is it about you know actually it's the most profitable way of doing it honest it's about all of those things uh, janice there's there's no one single answer to this Uh, let's take the the ugliest of them all first shall we is um it is to make profit as an organization um raw mail's been for a challenging year or so and we're thankfully at the uh, the back end of that. 
but we've um, not been able to give our customers the level of service that we would have liked to through quite a, a, um, uh, our industrial action uh, dispute. But as a sales team, as the people that look after those relationships, regardless of what the service we've been able to provide as a company, um, we've got to maintain those relationships and now rebuild on them. Now, if we don't have those relationships right in the first place, if we don't have the relationship capital to be able to say, right, we're now back to our best, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, so you can trust us to come back with you, then that rebuilding exercise is going to take longer than than, than we can do. Mm. We're really proud of our heritage as an organisation and our brand and, and what we do for the country. And of course, a lot of people still assume we just deliver letters, but we don't. We're, a, we're a, the, by far and away the largest parcel carrier uh, in the UK. And that's a really important connection point that really came home through the COVID pandemic when we were delivering and collecting all of the test kits across the country, which allowed us to do that testing program. You know, that's a, a key, we're a key part of the UK infrastructure. That's our core a bit. But the UK looks and feels and talks and acts differently this generation than it did in the last generation. And if we don't stay aligned to that, then actually we're failing in our service obligation. We're failing as an organisation to do the very thing that we are here to do, which is connect people and customers to their goods or their letters or their documents. There is a personal drive. Um, I didn't uh, I didn't come from an educated background. I didn't start with GCSEs. And I've been fortunate to have uh, uh, to build a career in logistics, not always at Royal Mail, um, and I've worked for some great people who've supported me to um, close the gaps in my education, but allow me the opportunity to grow and try new things and do different positions and work in different sectors, and it's been amazing. What's really hard is I see, and my daughter's 21, my lad's nearly 15, is I see at their age it's quite difficult to get those opportunities you know what hasn't moved on as a society particularly is our education approach and we are still wedded to certification which for me ignores a huge amount of talent and for me sales is one of those career paths that nobody chooses but actually if it was better publicized maybe there was more awareness of it the type of career and life that you can build yourself as a successful salesperson is phenomenal. I mean, we're doing this now, Janice, off the back of sales careers, right? Yeah. Um, but young kids aren't choosing it. And what I want to be able to provide is an opportunity for those kids who might not have had the best start. They might not have done that well at school. But do you know what? They've got that bit of grit. They've got that entrepreneurialism. They've got that determination that bit of charm the empathy that it takes to build a relationship quickly and understand what customers want take that and build on it and hopefully give them a career the challenge i've got is getting young people to think royal mail and parcel force is a sexy place to work now i think it clearly is but that's that's the the you're biased (laughs) absolutely yeah well, this is a great segue because uh, I really wanted to talk about recruitment. We, we mentioned um, about that. And, uh, you know, we, I remember us talking like you can have, a, you know, a young lad or, or young young woman that has sold things on a market store. 
and they weren't necessarily, you know, they haven't got the degree that often a lot of these application forms um, ask for. Um, why we need that, I don't know. So there's all these barriers to actually getting into sales and they may be perfect for, for the job. They may not be comfortable with writing CVs and actually the predictive validity of CVs is only 18%. I don't know why the recruitment industry is still stuck on all of these methodologies that they use, which is yeah. the worst way to uh, actually uh, recruit people. So how can uh, you mentioned the apprenticeship but how do you identify a, a, a wider source of people even if they want to work in sales there are so many barriers for them getting in so how do we begin to resolve this it's, it, it's a really good question Janice and it's one that we've not got right because for our uh, recruitment and we were looking for uh, internships that on paper it looked quite attractive and we just weren't attracting anybody really that uh, and 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 that's really difficult so it's obviously something we and I have got to work on as well and understand better I think as an industry we've got to do more uh, about talking about it the work we do with the ISP is really really good uh, and trying to position uh, sales through uh, as a career earlier in uh, in people's education young people's education whether that's as simple as working with charities working with youth clubs getting into schools and sales leaders uh, like uh, you or any of the guests that you have in your podcast for example just opening people's eyes to what it means to have a career in sales I'm not convinced there's an easy answer other than it's quite a hard slog. And for those of us that really care about it, have got to do more, um, do more about it. Uh, And I think we've, there should be um, an ability to learn about sales. I I have a bit of a challenge with what kids are being taught in school anyway. You know, don't we all? (laughs) It's really, it's difficult, isn't it? Because clearly clearly it's beyond me to set educational policy but i'd love to see more relevancy in schools that's the that's the bit that for me doesn't help kids it helps kids pass exams but beyond school when do we do exams there's not that many of them um but what we need to do as organizations as well is create that pathway so yes somebody might not come in with the maths and the english gcse or the history a level or whatever it might be but we need to make sure that when people are starting at any age, actually, in our organisations, that we are giving them the tools to do the bits that are relevant. Because you do need to be able to understand quotes and be business savvy and understand the proposals that you're putting together for a customer, how they work and so on. But a lot of that will come with experience. And in reality, like most of us, we've learned that by being exposed to it and we've learned it by failing. And we've learned it by then understanding why we failed or why that deal hasn't happened or by having great leaders or, in fact, having terrible leaders as well. Yeah. Um, we, I've we had le- a few of those. <laughs> That's the challenge, isn't it? And you learn yeah. as much from the bad leadership um, sometimes as you certainly do from the good leadership. And, and I think a well-rounded uh, career person is someone who's had the benefit of both. Yeah. Um, clearly. And yeah. I think the difficulty with sales is, sorry, Janice, but the, yeah. the difficulty with sales is businesses and I do it every salesperson has some money on their head so we bring them in and they're going to generate a million pounds because that's the target but we need to give people a space to ramp up and that's a difficult business case 
for uh, for the way in which most organisations decide to bring on salespeople or invest in salespeople. Mm. If they're not paying for themselves, it can be difficult to justify. A lot of organisations are cash strapped as they always are. They've got to choose to spend their pounds and pence wisely. But the research that I did shows that you invest early, you might not get that payback in the first year, mm. but after 18 months to two to three years, actually that payback starts to really ramp up. So being able to afford that time early, allow people to fail, give them the room to test and learn, you can bring on a brilliant salesperson who will pay back, you know, tenfold, twentyfold over time. And I think when you do have the right um, leadership and management and coaching, and especially when you're helping them to access opportunities, they always remember that. And ideally, they pass it on to others as well. So, you know, it's not only helping the organisation, it's actually helping the wider community and society. You've just demonstrated that in that you said where you came from, this industry has given you the opportunity to continuously develop yourself. And now you're wanting to pass that on as well. So um, it's a good way to actually go go about it. I think in the past... um, Many managers, not just in sales, are reluctant to invest in their people because they'll say, well, if I do, they'll leave. And it's a very now way way of thinking, really, isn't it? It is. And it's one of the things we've got to get our heads around um, as leaders. The, the generational differences, there's a good chance that the Gen Z population, and look, we're generalising massively here, Janice, yeah. and we be very mindful of that. But Gen Z typically are likely to have more uh, more roles, you know, five or six different career type choices, the ability to run side hustles, do business on the side and so on. You know, there's more access than ever before compared to Generation X uh, and the baby boomers, certainly where the notion was a job for life. Mm. We've got to get our head around the fact that's now different, which means we as leaders have got to work harder to create the environment that people want to stay in. Acknowledge they might not, but whilst they're there, let's us as the organisation and them as the individual get the most out of it. And that's as we best we can hope for. You get five good years out of somebody, that's brilliant, actually. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's I think it's interesting because the job for life contract we had, a lot of companies started to break that contract. You know, they wanted the extra fe- flexibility. A lot of the laws change. But it's interesting how companies are then um complaining how people don't stay with them well actually you're you're right they're not really investing in in the their employees and making sure they are happy and it's not always in sales that money that makes people stick it's often training it's coaching it's good management and the culture where they feel that they belong as well and they're all things that we can control absolutely and and the other part that was um stuck out for me in the research though and I've mentioned it before you're absolutely right we've all got those superstars in our teams and we all we all know them but the research also says that those superstars very rarely replicate that superstar performance when they go elsewhere because they're superstars because they're talented yes but also maybe because of the product the environment the patch there's all these other factors that all add up to um, absolutely superstar performance and so I think there's a word to the wise as well, because it's easy to be seduced as top performing salesperson to think I'll go over there and I'll get some more. And that might be true. But I think you've got to make that decision quite wisely, actually, if you are just motivated by by the money and the cash. Um, if you're earning it where you are, that's probably not a bad place to be. 
Yeah. And also to sales leaders that often want to recruit the A players Uh, and understanding they were A players there, but it doesn't mean there's a guarantee and you're better perhaps to nurture um, internally. And also where do sales leaders come from? Sales managers, they're promoted up. And they're actually often very bad sales leaders. It takes a very different different mindset. And there isn't that hasn't been in the past that sales training or appreciation that these are completely different skill sets. Oh, they're totally different. They're, they are totally different. And I think it's it's incumbent on us. And it's a conversation I have a lot with high performing salespeople who want to move into leadership because they want progression. And that's absolutely right and worthy is let's let's make sure you really understand what you're opening yourself up for because it's really easy when you're a high performing sales person to then manage in quite a directive way because you're just saying well this is what I used to do and it takes a while to undo those habits and become a coach or a a guide or a mentor um, as well as all the challenging things you have to deal with as a leader that uh, not many people see. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there I, I mentioned to you that there is um, a database out of, you know, that's been going for over 25 years and it's looking at like 460 bits of data. So a salesperson will fill out a questionnaire rather than, you know, relying on, on the CVs. And, and what's great, what I love about this is that you can cast your, your net much wider. It knows what best looks like in a whole you know 200 different industries across different um, sectors and countries and so uh, what I love about it from trying to recruit a diverse workforce whatever the age range is that you can throw anyone at it and it will tell you whether this person from a recruitment point of view is recommended or not based mm. upon that criteria of the whole history of data, but also the criteria you've set within the organisation of what you're looking for and what's the best kind of fit. But also within a sales team as well, understanding there are so many sales people that are in the wrong role for their skills. And, you know, but also for the way that they sell and their their view about money um, as well. So I'd really like to understand what is your view about the balance of skills against mindset and motivation in terms of creating a you know a really good five-year ten-year salesperson that is coachable what are the things that you look for when you're recruiting that's of most importance yeah, so it's, it's it does depend what level you're recruiting at, of course, Janice. And I think there's a difference between entry-level recruits, uh, for want of a better word, versus people who are maybe mid-year or, or into their um, in, into the promotion stages of, of their sales career. But fundamentally, what we're looking for is the same. And I think I might have mentioned to you, if I could ask one interview question... Get the CVs because I'm with you. I think there are there. I don't know what the alternative is, but they're a horrible format. I just want to ask one question, which is tell me your story and see how people I love to see how people articulate themselves, what they come up with. And it's those moments when you realize the interview um facade has come down and you see the real person underneath it. You see the person that's really going to be working with you and the person that's really going to be in front of their customers. And I Maybe it's an overused cliche term. I feel like there's an authenticity about that. And it's that that really 
matters. It's somebody who is genuinely interested and curious in the customer because ultimately that's what leads to the right solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's possibly overused. It's a bit of a cliche, but that demonstration of empathy, uh, the understanding of the wider world is is really, really useful. I know I've got young people within uh, my team who have you know, been in their careers two, three years, you, you know, starting. But they appear, well, they do have a business maturity way beyond the years that they've that they've worked. And that's that's just innate in them. That's just something because of the way that they operate, um, the way that they go about their business, the way they interact with people. And that's really key. The challenge, though, Janice, and I think this is what you're articulating is, how do we get to that that selection criteria in the face of you know eighteen <laughs> percent validity on CVs and some minimum criteria that frankly just helps you get through the bulk of applications that you get? That's a that's a real challenge. That's a, that's certainly a challenge that we face at, at Royal Mail. I face at Royal Mail. Yeah, uh, is, is how do we make that initial selection? Yeah. Uh, right. Because the risk is you can burn an awful lot of quite expensive leadership time doing early sifting if you give everybody uh, an early opportunity to come and sit in front of you. It's quite difficult, isn't it? So. Yeah. And often the the interview teams have the, the innate bias anyway. So, you know, there is a way in terms of giving a questionnaire. So it's completely anonymous and the questionnaire is can be comparative and look at the criteria for uh, selection and this yeah. is before the interview before you know cvs all of that so actually that does the first sieve and it's completely un- un- unbiased yeah. um and it's measuring against this kind of um, bank of 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 data um we just need to kind of like un- i think is look at what we're doing isn't the best way of doing it and then we're going to find better alternatives and often recruiters are very stuck in the the process that that we've had for a long time and it obviously it's very costly in sales it minimum of a hundred thousand you know in order to uh, recruit somebody that doesn't then work out um that's a lot of money really that's being burnt through constantly so we've got to look at a better way of doing it we absolutely do. And I mean, there's some real basics, isn't there? I think we need to be a bit braver to challenge some of our biases as well. And they're, and they're really in that. And I can't remember where I heard it, and I might misquote this, um, Janice, but uh, I was either listening to something or reading something which was around being able to pronounce people's names. Yeah. And actually, if you if I can't pronounce your name or I'm not confident pronouncing your name in a way, rather than insult you by getting it wrong i just won't use it or i'll call bob or laura because i i know how to say that and and so there's this piece i think around a bit of embarrassment around um, asking some of the questions to help us get a bit more comfortable with the people that we're speaking to or the people that we want to engage with um without fear of being um i don't know vilified or exposed for for being a potentially ignorant to it because otherwise everybody suffers and it's a real it's a really difficult stigma to break I think but we've all got to do better at it yeah yeah I'm really interested in your third box thinking as a core focus you mentioned about the 
um, three-year, 10-year and the way that they're quite business savvy. So this is a real um, core in the way that you deploy your customer centricity. So tell yeah. me more about that. So third box thinking, I can't claim any um, any credit for it. That came out of the work we did with one of our training partners, Consalia, uh, Dr. Philip Squire and his team. And the third box thinking effectively just gets you to start from the eyes in our context of the receiving customer. So the customer's customer and then work backwards, because actually, if what we can do answers the customer's customer needs, then it definitely answers the customer's needs. And it's a relatively simple, it's quite straightforward in concept, but it forces you to think really about, well, what are we trying to achieve? Where do we really add value in this part of the supply chain or which of the profit pools can we increase or what problems are we solving? And I'll give you an example in the context of Royal Mail and the logistics industry that we work in. when customers switch to Royal Mail, what they find is their customer queries, the where is my item uh, calls into call centres, just goes down because there's there's less concern typically because the Royal Mail is a more trusted brand and they're more confident it will be delivered. So therefore, it saves money out of customer service. It means that the customer's customer is more confident that their delivery is going to come on time and so on and so forth. But we might be 5p more expensive per item um uh, at the headline rate but we might be saving hundreds of thousands of pounds in customer query costs and so it's quite straightforward in in that context you can quite quickly equate a value to what we do um but putting the money aside it's just about saying well if we can solve your customers problems surely we solve yours too um and so if we try and think everything through that the other part of course is being who we are we do we're legally obliged and we're very proud to service the whole country just through the postal the postal network. Uh, and again, that's our core and our heart. So we are always working with the final customer in mind, despite the fact we are selling to the, the retailers and the big senders and the shippers and the marketplace sellers of the country. Yeah, yeah. So um, what would you say is the one tried and tested strategy you'd offer listeners to help them to scale their sales? So for us, it's, um, is it a strategy? Is it a mantra? It's looking after the customer better than anybody else can. And if I give that a bit more um, colour for you, Janice, I I mentioned earlier the industrial impact relations. It's been well publicised. We don't need to talk about that. But the reality is we weren't able to offer our customers the best service. That wasn't the fault of the salespeople or the account management, but it's their responsibility to manage the relationship and be the voice piece of the customer. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a dispute that the salespeople were involved in. It was a different layer within the organisation, but it's still our organisation. And the point being that even if it impacted revenue in the short term, the instruction or the ask to all of my team was look after that relationship first. Do the right thing by the relationship even if it has an impact on revenue, uh, because it, it will pay back in spades. If you don't look after that relationship, you've got nothing to trade on, regardless of, of what happens. Sometimes that's difficult to do in organisations, large and small, because, of course, we've got hundreds of salespeople who look after, you know, tens and tens of thousands of accounts. 
you can't do everything for every customer. You can't just have carte blanche autonomy to say, yes, you can have a credit for that, or yes, you can have that price. We've still got to have quite strict controls because otherwise we'd be a, an, <laughs> an unruly organisation and we'd be, we'd be in a right mess. Um, so it's not about total freedom. It's about the understanding that, that you can manage that relationship the best way you can as an individual, regardless of what else is going on around you. And that's for me, is the key strategy. I've got another question in terms of how do you actually manage that? Because it allows a bit that some level of flexibility. But as you say, you you're a profitable organization. You have to be. So yeah. how how do you make sure that there's people can show initiative and do things? How is that managed? Well, it can be quite challenging and there's always going to be conflict points because, again, a, a customer will always want something maybe they can't have and, and a, an account manager or salesperson will always want to give away something that they, they can't do. We have to try just try and be quite clear and pragmatic about it. Nothing's particularly off the table in terms of asking for it, but what I do, what we do need to be able to do is justify the ask. And because it's very easy, especially when you're under pressure as a salesperson or particularly an account manager where you get caught in this world between service and sales and, and so on, um, particularly as an account manager that you can come under fire from all of your customers saying, right, you've got to do this. This, this maybe isn't good enough or we want these claims. Justify that ask. As that account manager, you've got a, a professional responsibility to work on behalf of your customer, but on behalf of, in this context, Royal Mail or Parcel Force as well. You know, you've got to treat both sets of those money like it's your own. You've got to confidently articulate the customer's real challenge and the real pain points internally if we need to do something out of process to the point where it's beyond down. But you also need to be able to defend our internal processes externally. Yeah. But don't hide behind them. You've got to own them. And that's uh, that's uh, a lot about coaching. That's a lot about experience. Uh, it's a lot about confidence in, in your ability. And it's a lot about that that relationship. Uh, how often have we heard across our teams? Or I've certainly had customers say it to me, Look, I know it's not you, I know it's the organisation. But actually the response to that's got to be, no, but I stand behind the organisation, but I also understand what you're wanting me to do and I'll do everything I can for you. But I might not be able to. Yeah. You know, and it, we, it won't always be got right, Janice. It just mm -hmm. won't. You know, when you're having thousands of customer conversations a week, it, yeah. you'll get some of it wrong. Um, but you've got to just be able to provide that parameter and those that coaching and those guidelines as best you can. Excellent. Excellent. OK, so if you're on a desert island on your own, what's the one thing you take with you? <laughs> so so this, this might be a bit of a cop out, Janice, but um, I was recently just last week, I was I found myself stranded in Spain because we'd had our hire car broken into. Our suitcases were stolen. Our passports were gone. Our driving licenses were gone. Uh, my wife's mobile phone was gone. We were some friends. Their phones were gone. I just happened to have my phone still on me. And it was the only reason we managed to sort any of the mess out because sadly, and back to almost where we started around the, the pace of change of technology and what it means to us, it was almost impossible to operate without a phone, particularly in a foreign country. And sadly, I'll have to admit my, my knowledge of my command of the Spanish language does not extend beyond ordering a couple of beers like most typical British people. Um, so I think if I was stranded on a desert island, I'd have to have my phone with me. 
because I feel like it's the only survival tool, only chance I'd have of surviving anything. Because turns out I'm not that resourceful without it. Maybe that's the <laughs> that's the problem. Well, it's a good thing to know, then, really, isn't it? You know, uh, you know, you can have your your mobile phone and just think. You know, I'll give you some internet as as well, so you can look at all the survival techniques that you need in order to survive on your island. Okay. Exactly. That would be brilliant. And if nothing else, I could order some armbands to swim off of it. And that would be. <laughs> now you're taking it a little bit too far. Amazon is doesn't extend that far. You're on a desert island. Royal Mail does, though, Janice. Oh, sure. Royal Mail does. <laughs> That's a good one. Fantastic. Royal Mail goes everywhere. Global organization worldwide. Absolutely. Yeah. And delivers on time as well. You know, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, All right. So how can listeners get hold of you, John? Uh, so typically I hang around on LinkedIn, Janice. So uh, listeners can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'll, uh, I will be. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge about, you know, uh, generational. And, you know, I know a lot of sales leaders are not where you are, not as advanced where you are thinking about, you know, their future proofing their sales force. So I know a lot of them are going to listen and learn from this. So thank you very much for sharing your your knowledge, John. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Janice. It's, um, it's been great. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scale Your Sales podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the caption show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.